At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following content is explicit. It's Tuesday, November 28th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. James O'Keefe is bad. James O'Keefe is also a propagandist. But it must be said that James O'Keefe is a bad propagandist. Now, when we say bad propagandist, we usually mean he's nefarious or he's evil. Yes, and James O'Keefe is that, but he's also really incompetent. Incompetence leveled by malevolence, tempered by mendacity, a formulation we once used for someone else. So yesterday, James O'Keefe's latest gambit was scrambled when the Washington Post revealed that one of his minions had approached a Post reporter leveling accusations against Roy Moore. But the minion's accusations did not check out. Her backstory was contrived. Her interests were off base. Her paper trail raised issues. Yeah, that's right. She had a paper trail because she used her real name trying to sting the Washington Post. Oh, my God. Harvey Weinstein goes with ex-Massad agents. O'Keefe uses someone who listed the Jerky Boys and Captain Jenks as a reference. Those are uh, phony phone call guys. When O'Keefe started... Off the bat, when he was younger, he's only 31 now, so much that he's done in his life. But when he started, he did have some hits right off the bat, you know, like Ed Burns or the Baja Men. He dressed up as a pimp and he stung Acorn. He pretended to be a Muslim and he stung NPR. He got an NPR executive fired for saying that the Tea Party was, quote, xenophobic and, quote, seriously racist. That is not the alt-right we know today. This guy also said, I'll give you a quote, one of the other quotes that got him fired. Liberals today, in my opinion, might be more fair and balanced than conservatives. Yeah, he was fired. And then the NPR president was fired. But then news organizations began to stand up, began to fight back. O'Keefe began to trip up. He was arrested. He eventually pled guilty to a charge surrounding his efforts to tap Senator Mary Landrieu. And then there was the time. Do you remember this? He tried to lure a young CNN reporter onto a boat, a young female CNN reporter, onto a boat full of dildos in an attempt supposedly to seduce her onto this dildo boat. How did dildo boat not become a hashtag? How did every other target that O'Keefe ever put in his hashtag not just immediately say, dildo boat, dildo boat, dildo boat, whenever he showed up with microphones? Well, if that was the dildo boat, this thing with the post was a 12-inch double-dong Titanic. O'Keefe's fake rape victim was uncovered, and then when O'Keefe was interviewed by the post about it, he put up his own edited version of the interview. And even in his own video, he came off looking terrible. One of your reporters said that your behavior at the newspaper was way over the top. He said that he can't believe he even works at an organization with some of the people who believe what they say. What does this mean? Other than O'Keefe's smugness, it's impossible for a viewer. I'm not even going to say a fair-minded viewer. I know who's watching these videos. But I would really think, other than running on the fumes of, we know O'Keefe's got him, this guy must be lying about something, but there's nothing in those questions or in this video that would even leave the person who's most in the bag for you and your nonsense something to feast on. 
He can't believe he works at an organization with people who believe what they say. Huh? And then comes the gotcha question, which is, can you talk about that? The Post reporter, Aaron C. Davis, was great. He answered truthfully. I, you know, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then O'Keefe lowered the boom. Is this a sort of anticipatory uh, behavior ahead of what we're about to do? Is this some anticipatory behavior uh, about what we were going to do? How would the reporter or anyone know or care what you, James O'Keefe, were going to do? If you want to take a lesson from a more skilled purveyor of your particular brand of nonsense, there's Jesse Waters at Fox. And he does this, but he knows enough to actually have his questions down pat beforehand. He has his bullet points ready to go. He doesn't allow himself to be presented like the fool that James O'Keefe does. Uh, A good propagandist would have said to the Post reporter, is what you're attempting a preemptive strike on me? If you're not scared about the bombshell we're going to release, why are you here? Let me ask you this. Yes or no? Have you ever visited our offices before we began reporting on this bombshell that we're about to release? Yes or no? Yes or no? You do that. You can at least throw up a video that the people who are already in the bag for you can get something out of. O'Keefe is just playing from a 2010 playbook that once worked because the mainstream media was cowed and defensive. Now that the mainstream media has grown some fangs, they have declawed O'Keefe. Not to mention that the Russians are running rings around the guy. The Russians have Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. Tim O'Keefe is Boo Boo Bear. O'Keefe has always been a dishonest jerk, but now he's a dishonest jerk who's no longer useful to his side. Other conservative publications are asking, why are we aligned with him? And donors are wondering, why do I fund this fool? Good propagandists get gigs on Fox. Great propagandists disappear before you even knew they were there. Bad propagandists become laughingstocks. Dildo boat, James O'Keefe. Dildo boat. On the show today, what everybody's talking about and nobody is saying, but everybody knows, it is a, uh, a greatest hit spiel. But first, it's the 1%. No, it's the point one of 1%. Oh, that's true, right? The 1% has 38% of the wealth. The top one-tenth of 1% owns as much wealth as the bottom 90%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my guess says it's not just the one or the point one. It's more than that. Does he blame the top 5%? Well, go on. Does he blame the top 10%? Still got a problem. The top 15%? Not great. All right. Is it the top 20%? Yup. They are what he calls the dream hoarders. So are the top 20% ruining it for the rest of us? Or to be fair, are we who are in the top 20% ruining it for the rest of you? Richard Reeves says yes. And I fiercely defend my quintile. Income inequality. You've seen the bar chart. You've probably lived it if you're an American. And it is bad. Our Gini coefficient is not something to brag about. But now Richard V. Reeves in his book, Dream Hoarders, points the finger, not just at the top 1%, but the 19% below them, how the American upper middle class is leaving everyone else in the dust and why that is a problem and what to do about it. Hello, Richard Reeves. How are you? 
Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I, I suppose I could ask you a follow-up question, but just by reading the subtitle, I, I got a lot of information out. What is... <laughs> so the upper, yeah, it's a yes, long one. Yes. It's so longer the, than the book. I know the upper middle class uh, has it a lot better than the uh, former machinists, than the once blue-collar worker, than the entrenched poor, but that is part of being the upper middle class. It is something to strive for. So what's shameful about the way the upper middle class is constructed these days? Well, let's start with the facts rather than 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 with the shame, which I'm sure we'll get into. But the the point essentially is not look the top twenty percent or the upper middle class, however you define. They're always going to be at the top. That's the definition of being up there. The question is whether or not that top is pulling away, whether it's separating from the herd, if you like. And so it's not simply the case that the kind of people at the top are still at the top, although that may be seen as a problem. It's the there. Uh, economic situation, social situation, is improving more quickly than everybody else's. So if you can imagine kind of like a caravan or a you know, camel train or whatever, through the, kind of just they're pulling away at the front. And so there's a bigger gap than there used to be between roughly the top 20% and everybody else, whereas the bottom 80% looks pretty much the same as it did in 1979 in terms of income inequality. So you mentioned the Gini coefficient, which is very exciting for a social scientist to have I the Gini it. coefficient. I mean, just throwing that in at the beginning there is it warms the heart. The Gini coefficient for the bottom 80% hasn't really moved very much if you just exclude the top 20%. So the fact that the Gini coefficient is quite high, that measure of inequality is quite high, is really just a story of the pulling away of these people at the top, the upper middle class. But the vast majority of the pull away is not with percent 80 to 85. It's percent one, isn't it? Well, the higher you go, the more you see that stretch. So if you might want to think of it as kind of a piece of elastic or something, and that actually the kind of closer you get to the the top, then the more it's being stretched. And so it's perfectly true to say that the degree of pulling away is greater towards the top than uh, the group just below them. But the point at which you start to see the pulling away in other words, the point at which the income distribution starts to change is about that 80th percentile, is roughly where that, that fifth starts. Not to say that everyone above that line is doing as well as the top 1% in terms of income growth, but just to say that's where the picture starts to change a bit. Okay, so I want to uh, talk about a couple of the points that we agree on, and then I, I, I relish this. I will get to our points of disagreement. So I agree with you that one way the upper middle class hoards, your word, hoards its mm-hmm. privilege and its status is through in college admissions legacy preference. I, I, I've scarcely heard an actual defense of this other than just be quiet about it and hope the gravy train keeps on rolling. What else unfair hoarding goes on? Well, another one is the way in which internships are allocated you know, from everywhere, from the White House to de Blasio City Hall, to companies, to think tanks, media organizations, magazines, podcasts, is that very often, uh, if there's an internship opportunity, that's not advertised uh, widely. There's, there's Very often, it's stitched up on someone else's behalf. And again, that's a zero-sum game. That's, there's only you know, a certain number of those that can go around. And so to the extent that those are traded out, you know, it's just in the grace and favor uh, in turn. And, you know, it doesn't matter which organization you talk to. It can be the most liberal one you can imagine. And someone will have a story about an intern who they got because of a funder or a friend or an uncle or an aunt or whatever. The biggest one in terms of its impact, and perhaps we're going to get into this, is the way that upper middle class neighborhoods use local zoning regulations to make it unaffordable to build housing or to live in those areas, which are very often you know close to economic growth poles, unless you are 
sufficiently rich and wealthy to be able to move into that area. And so I think the way the housing market, which is obviously then subsidized through mortgage interest deduction and everything else, and its interaction with education and the way that school uh, admission zones work, actually the, the use of land and land use regulation is another way in which advertently or not, the upper middle class do actually end up hoarding quite an important and valuable good, in this case, land and housing in some of the areas that are the most attractive to live in economically. So I live in New York City, and that doesn't go on, although in some cities it does. In New York City, the conversation is about anti-gentrification. Yeah, the gentrification point, I think we have to be quite careful about this. I think that that to just be kind of anti-gentrification is not the right position because that's kind of anti-integrated communities in a way. We can't on the one hand say we want more mixed communities economically, but then say, but we don't want any more affluent people moving into poorer areas. The question is whether or not we can have that kind of gentrification, that kind of progressive gentrification to create more mixed communities without decanting everybody else and dislocating existing residences because of the uncontrollable cost of housing. So you have to build in inclusive zoning, build in affordable housing right from the outset. And then you, you, then you might have the kind of gentrification which we should support. Okay, so let's get to some areas of disagreement. In general, I don't believe that income inequality is the best measure to judge the health of a country or the health of an economy or the health of the people within an economy. And uh, I can make this point a few ways. I'm sure you've heard clever people say this. But let's say we take this problematic 20% and afflict, I don't know, a good number of them, 5% of them, 5% of the head of households with cancer so that they die and maybe some of them go bankrupt and anyway, they lose their wealth. That would lessen income inequality, would it not? Those people would have less money. How does that make America better, just to have some of the richer people having less money? Even if income inequality doesn't change, let's say you let's say you narrow the income gap a bit, right? You bring the Gini coefficient down, perhaps in the way you've just identified. Mm-hmm. And yet, the kid born poor stays poor. The kid born in the middle stays in the middle. The kid born at the top stays at the top. But everyone's a little bit more equal. How do you feel about that? Well, if you're a pure income egalitarian, you feel pretty good about it. I'm not, because I actually think the whole idea that you're kind of stark to some extent, and in my view, to a great extent, where your parents were, speaks to something, a lack of fluidity, mobility, opportunity, dynamism in a society that actually comes down to a class-bound society, which is what I've ended up arguing, which is that the US is a deeply class-stratified society, like the one I thought I was escaping from when I moved from the UK. If anything, the US is a more class-bound society than the UK. Yes. And we have talked in the past about the big problems being things like the immiseration of the poor and mobility. America used to be much more mobile. If anything, mm-hmm. people think the American dream has to do with mobility to the extent they buy into that has to do with mobility and not income inequality or where you finish. But if you're saying that we're class bound, I don't think that that phrase should apply to a situation where most of the people who are in the upper middle class, the so-called dream hoarders, did not start out in families that were in the upper middle class. I mean, you make it seem like it's so entrenched, but you know, I'm looking at this Pew Economic Mobility Study and they say that 40% of children raised in the top quintile will remain there as adults, meaning 60% won't. It could be lower than 40%, and I don't think it should be purely 20% for a number of reasons we'll get into, but that does Mm -hmm. not sound anywhere near as dire as you paint it. 
Well, it rather depends what your what your counterfactual is. So it's a perfectly good discussion to get into. So you're right, there is downward mobility. Then there's a question as to how far they fall. So even if you come out the top, you very often the majority of those who fall out won't fall that far. But still, you're right, there's some downward relative mobility, which is good because unless we have some Yes, and I have the stats on that. Uh, according, yeah, I'll yeah. just say, according to this uh, survey, 30% of the children born in the top quintile will fall below the middle it, Eight percent will fall to the bottom, so they'll mostly go down bu- a bump if they go down. They'll go down a bump. Okay, yeah. fine. And you need that in order for some people to, to move up. And you're right; they're in a kind of sort of radically egalitarian opportunity utopia. Every number would be twenty percent, and you've already said that you wouldn't want that. And I well, think I don't we think it would be a utopia, and you don't either. Well, you think no, there, there would be dystopian elements to it, yeah. no doubt, in order to achieve that. So yes, I think we will like, agree in part about that. So why do I think those numbers, let's call it kind of stickiness or the heritability score at the top, why do I think that's too high? Firstly, because it's higher than in other countries. And so you've got to wonder, why is it that the US has more stickiness at the top than other countries? And secondly, because it looks as if anything, it's getting greater over time. So it looks as if the uh, people who are born into the top quintile in more recent years are more likely to stay there when they grow up than in previous generations. And so we know that absolute mobility has declined because the economy is not growing as much. But but it also looks as if in that particular measure anyway, relative mobility is declining too. In other words, the relative chances of remaining at the top seem to be increasing in the US rather than going down. And so for those two reasons, I just think we should prod at that a little bit. So I think there are a couple explanations for this. In fact, I think there's an explanation for each of those factors. Why are more people staying at the top? I think it's because our economy has moved away from uh, the manufacturing base and the premium placed on college education, which usually has been true, is even truer than it's ever been. Plus, we have a college graduate is much more likely to be married to another college graduate, and then their kids become college graduates. So it's a little bit of a Mm. snowball effect. I mean, that's the explanation. I don't know if it's the excuse, but uh, do you by that explanation? I essentially do. I think that the story you've told about human capital, kind of broadly, to use the kind of economist term, is right. Yeah. That you see it, that the labor market rewards skills and education. You do see this uh, assortative mating pattern that you've seen. I think the question then becomes whether the ways in which those who are doing well and then who tend to marry people who are doing well are able to convert their own economic position into greater opportunities for their kids, whether they're always fair and whether we shouldn't, have, whether we shouldn't actually have institutions that lean against that rather than lean to towards it. And right now, I think it's the problem is that it's too easy to convert economic success in one generation into opportunities for the next generation, which almost guarantee their success at the expense of others. So it's that it's the translation of the economic success of one generation into the inequality of the next that I think is the issue. I just slightly disagree, slightly, because I don't think it's too easy to convert that. Even a kid with advantages will still have to work really hard. I just think it's too hard for the other 80% to get there. Uh, that's, I think, the crux of the issue, especially when we're talking about not the top one or 0.1%. When we're talking about the 19% of America that you're talking about, the problem isn't that they have it so good as much as we don't have enough mechanisms for the other 80% to get that college education. I guess you're pointing to the fact that part of the problem is the 19% are hoarding it for themselves, dream mm-hmm. hoarders. And I'm saying, uh, maybe yes, maybe no, I can't prove that, but I definitely can prove we're failing the other 80, especially, you know, the other, let's say, top half of the economy who should be able to go to college, not graduate with uh, crippling debt and get a good life for themselves. 
Yes, but then if you look at look at the current composition of the students at the selective four-year colleges and above in the U.S., they're predominantly from that top 20%. So most of the students at U.S. selective four-year colleges are from the top 20%. And you might well say, well, that, that's great. All we need to do is make the colleges that the other kids aren't getting into better. And I think that's exactly what we should do. I agree with that. But we shouldn't completely look away from the fact there's a bit of a zero-sum game going on here as well, which is that to some extent... All that will happen is is that you'll keep moving up the competition. So you'll now see, for example, postgraduate education is becoming more important. And that's a, that's a way in which kind of kids from advantaged backgrounds are kind of staying ahead, if you like. And look, you're right to say that there's a lot of – there are processes here at work that are kind of natural and that, uh, that go with the grain of human nature. But that's one of the reasons why we have institutions within society that redistribute very strongly. But you compare right now the resources that go into four-year selective public colleges who practice legacy preferences and the community college a few miles down the road that serves the kids who aren't from the more advantaged backgrounds and I, and I put it to you that that says as a society we are investing more heavily in the opportunities of those who already have much rather than the opportunities of those who do not. What about the idea you know the Chinese have this saying one generation plants the tree the next gets the shade. Another way to put this is one of the greatest drivers of uh, industry and, and I mean that in all senses of the word just try trying to achieve is so that your children can have life a little better for you. There is some amount of dream hoarding or passing on some advantages to the children that are is a good thing that should be rewarded and that overall helps everybody, no? Yes. And that's I think the one of the most difficult questions that we face in this particular area of debate which is where does the natural laudable desire of parents to want the best for their kids and want better for their kids very often than themselves and to work very hard to achieve that. Where does that natural desire run up against other values, collective values around equality of opportunity, fairness, etc.? There's a line at which we are not as parents permitted either by law or by social norms to allow our, our natural preference for our kids to trump other values. So it's fine to help your kid become a better baseball player by practicing with them after school every night and get them on the team. It's not fine to bribe the coach to get them on the team. Why not? In both (laughs) cases, in both cases, you've given something up, time in one case, money in the other. In neither case have you broken the law. Why? Because there's a sense of kind of, look, it should be done fairly. And so if you're kind of helping your kids to succeed fairly, then great. There's still a whole amount of redistribution and investment in other kids we need to do. But the line then gets crossed into kind of hoarding is where you start to do things like, well, hey, I can give you a great internship at Brookings, no problem. Hey, I can get you into a better college by putting in a call. Or hey, I can actually make sure that your neighborhood is going to be much more, a much better one to grow up in by zoning out anyone who doesn't have the same incomes as us. That's cheating. And I'm not saying that it isn't a kind of natural desire to want the best for your kids. I'm just saying there's a line. So take one example, which is this is definitely a top 5% issue rather than a top 20, which is legacy preferences in colleges. I accept that that's not going to be the whole top 20%. They've been wiped out everywhere else in the world, including in the UK where I come from, because it's a kind of sense of, look, there shouldn't be a hereditary principle operating here. And yet the number of Americans I'll talk to, which will say, well, maybe it's not fair, but everyone's doing it, or I don't understand why you've got something against this and so on. And I think it, what it tells you is that there are plenty of countries in the world where they've decided, in fact, every country in the world except the US, the natural desire of a parent to want their best for their kids shouldn't allow them to help them get a place at a college they wouldn't otherwise get into. There's a line. We can argue about that line, but at least at least we're admitting that there is a line 
yeah. that we shouldn't cross. I'm with you on that side of the line. And by the way, all the people who, who argue that they should have legacy preference, do they realize that if they didn't, they wouldn't feel obliged to donate to their very well-funded alma maters? <laughs> that would be, well, that's, it would be that's very why the colleges, that's, I think that's why the colleges want people to continue to think that it probably has an even bigger effect yeah. than it really does because it generates more fundraising. In order for the lower 80% to achieve, does the top 20% have to suffer a bit, lose, lose out? Yes. Yeah, I think that there will be a bit of a cost here. If we have more integrated neighborhoods, then that may have some short-term effect on people's home values. Indeed, removing the mortgage interest deduction will do that. Uh, It may well be that our kids don't get quite such good colleges. It may well be that they rub shoulders with kids who are slightly poorer than they're used to in their school corridors. It may be that actually we have to turn our own kids down for internships. I've done that. You know, my son asked me to help him get an internship, and I said no. And I think that although this is a horrible conversation, right, zero some people losing. Nobody wants to say that. I think that the kind of attempt to build a more progressive politics around the idea that no one will lose, except possibly the super rich, right? And that no one has to give anything up and that there are no villains here has actually run its course. I actually think we do need a harder conversation about what it will take to get a more equal society. And in particular, that will mean that some of us will have to lose a little bit in order for others to gain. Now, it's a deeply difficult political conversation to have. And I'm not suggesting politicians should lead with that. In the, in the, you know, it's not a great bumper sticker, is it? You know, vote for me and I'll, and I'll make you suffer. But I do think that at least intellectually, we should be a bit more honest about the fact that equality requires a bit of sacrifice. Well, beyond if we're honest with ourselves or where the conversation should be, I'm just talking math and definitions. In order for there to be more accessibility to the top 10% or 20%, those in those percentiles will have to tumble. Yeah. There is a degree of zero. And interestingly, we kind of we accept that in other areas. Like, so I think most people would accept that. Look, if we want more women on U.S. boards or the boards of U.S. companies, that means we'll have fewer men. If we want more Black Americans in Congress, it means we'll have fewer White Americans in Congress. There is an element of zero sum here, and we seem happy to recognize that in other areas, but not so much in class. We seem to want to continue to persuade ourselves that somehow we can all end up in the upper middle class, all end up at the top. It's a bit the Lake Wobegon thing that we're all above average. Richard V. Reeves is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of Dream Hoarders, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why It's a Problem, and What to Do About It. Also, please don't ask him for an internship. Thank you, Mr. Reeves. (laughs) Thank you for having me on. Well, maybe you would give an internship to the right person, just not your person. Actually, I would, but I have to come through a fair and equitable uh, (laughs) recruitment process, of course. Very good. And now the spiel wherein I ask, how is folding a gas station map or curing the common cold different from the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture? As you know, the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture describes the set of rational solutions to equations defining an elliptic curve. See, everybody knows that solving the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture is hard. It's hard to solve. That's why there's a million dollar prize for solving it. Everybody knows it's hard. Nobody thinks it's not hard, but folding a gas station map or curing the common cold or getting the Pacquiao Mayweather fight to go off. Now, those were things that nobody knew could be so complicated. So I ask you, which category does healthcare belong in? Donald Trump says, it's not like the Birch Swinnerton Dyer conjecture. 
It's more like folding a gas station map in that nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. See, I thought everybody knew that. I've even seen a supercut put together by Politico of President Obama saying that over and over again. You know, healthcare is complicated because our healthcare system is so complex. I suffer no illusions that this will be an easy process. Once again, it will be hard. Healthcare is complicated stuff. So let me explain what's going on here. Simple explanation is that Trump does not know what he's talking about. But that is not what's going on. This is how Trump communicates. See, Donald Trump, ever the showman, knows that when communicating, you want to avoid qualifiers. Those are weasel words. Some, many, most, often, a lot. So when Donald Trump says nobody, what he really means is something close to almost everybody. Example. So where are you on the environment? I'm still open-minded. Nobody really knows. I've Look, I'm somebody that gets it. And nobody really knows. It's not something that's so hard and fast. Nobody knows, meaning almost every informed scientist knows. In fact, most every informed citizen knows climate change is real. Likewise, there's nobody better, which in Donald Trump's mouth means actually millions of people are better. So many, many better people. Here's this example. If you look at Ivanka, you take a look, and she's so strong, as you know, into the women's issue and child care. And so many things should be so good. You, nobody could do better than her. So that's nobody. What about everybody? If nobody means pretty close to everybody, does everybody mean almost nobody? When Donald Trump says it, it does mean that. I released the most extensive financial review of anybody in the history of politics. It's either 100 or maybe more pages of names of companies, locations of companies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's a very impressive list. And everybody says that. Everybody says that. Except every single ethics expert I've ever heard from who all say it's inadequate. Everybody, 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 everybody. So everybody means almost nobody. Nobody means almost everybody. To wit, here are a couple things Donald Trump says he could do better than anybody or what he knows more than anybody. I think I know more about foreign policy than anybody running. And who could forget this? I can be more presidential than anybody. I can be more presidential if I want to be. I can be more presidential than anybody. You know, when I have 16 people coming at me from 16 different angles, uh, you don't want to be so presidential. You have to win. You have to beat them back, right? And But I would say more presidential, and I've said this a couple of times, more presidential than anybody other than the great Abe Lincoln. And I think everybody agrees with him on that. So the question is, if when everybody means closer to nobody and vice versa, what about the somebodies? We're all somebodies, right? When does Donald Trump refer to the somebodies, the some people? Here's when. When he needs to introduce a theory or crazily inaccurate statement that even he doesn't want to own. Some people, a lot of people, many are saying. Here he was at a campaign rally talking about how horrible the deal was that the U.S. cut with Iran. What, what's going on there? You, that's why I say, I mean, some people say it's worse than stupidity. There's something going on that we don't know about. I mean, honestly. And you almost think it. I'm not saying that and I'm not a conspiracy person. Nope. He's just reporting what people are saying, like this. People are saying, many, many people are saying, you know, Trump is right. He's absolutely right about NATO. Some people tell me, a lot of people are saying, I'm just reporting here better than the failing New York Times, I might add. 
Here's another example of what some folks are saying. This time, it was about President Obama not sufficiently labeling the Orlando nightclub attack as Muslim terrorism. Well, there are a lot of people that think maybe he doesn't want to get it. A lot of people think maybe he doesn't want to know about it. And that's where the nobody knew healthcare could be so complicated idea comes in. Everybody knew it. But it's not that he's lying. It's not that he can't even speak the truth. It's that we don't speak Trump. And he expects us to, clearly, like when he talks to his crowds, including this time when the crowd consisted of all the media at his only press conference as president. Does anybody really think that Hillary Clinton would be tougher on Russia than Donald Trump? Does anybody in this room really believe that? No, not anybody. Everybody. So with this guide to Donald Trump, anybody can figure out what a certain somebody in the Oval Office means when he says everybody and nobody. Now, some people are saying this is not excusable, that there's another word for it. Rampant, wanton, uncontrolled, lying. But everybody knows a president wouldn't do that, right? Anybody? You're nobody till somebody loves you. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, who an undercover investigation reveals to be multidactyl. Mary Wilson, just producer, once wore a snout and donned paws to go undercover as Rufus Barkington in an effort to expose that the West Covina Cat Sanctuary had a quite lax adoption practice. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Now, a man by that exact name approached a Breitbart investigative reporter with an allegation that Al Franken once touched him at a state fair. And if that's true, this Steve Lichtai wants to know, can you assure me that Stewart Saves His Family will never be reissued on Blu-ray? The gist, we lived for decades as deep cover... We infiltrated a liberal magazine, and now it can be revealed. We have been screwing with you all along. Goofus is gallant, and gallant is goofus. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.